0: So, in response to my appeal to your thinking minds, I received many, many notes. Many, 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 many notes. Notes and notes and notes and notes. It's dangerous that thought factory, the thinking mind. I think my favorite note was someone who pointed out how many more people are sitting in chairs and wondered whether there wasn't some bit of phenomena of the body snatchers going on here, that we used to sit as yogis in the old style, and then the chairs somehow attract us to them or maybe it's just the aging of the sangha, they suggest. <laughs> or are li- the chair is a little bit like starfish, you know, reaching out to the sea urchins and taking us into them. What do we think about the changing of Buddhism in the West? <laughs> so there were notes asking for more stories and notes asking for speaking about trust or love or art, stories about real people living the Dharma, not mythological ones, forgiveness, beginner's mind, Dharma in the West, compassion, judging, family and children as practice, striving, the sure heart's release. Why not live in a monastery and go for it? How to live the Eightfold Path in the world. Practice at home. What is the source of the breath? Why is intention important to be aware of? Selflessness and anatta. Urgency on one side, and the intention, and inertia on the other. Or so many choices, how to make them wisely. Or the addictions of others that you live near, how to relate to them. Or the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water, and how to work with them. Loneliness, when one is without a sangha. Um, Is there a physical route that awareness travels to create uh, concentration of mind in the body? Um, All kinds of stories, all kinds of questions and thoughts. My first response on reading these and other notes was to think of that poem that I read one afternoon, ages ago in the first retreat, called Appointed Rounds. At first, he refused to deliver junk mail because it was all stupid, those deodorant ads, money-making ideas, and contests. Then he began to doubt the importance of the other mail he carried. He began to select first-class mail randomly for (laughs) non-delivery. After he had finished his mail route each day, he would return home with his handful of letters and put them in the attic. He didn't open them and never even looked at them again. It was as if he were an agent of fate, capricious and blind. In the several years before he was caught, friends vanished, certain engagements were broken, marriages failed, business deals fell through. Toward the end, he became more and more bold, deleting houses, then whole blocks from his route. (laughs) He began to feel he'd been born in the wrong era, If only he could have been a pony express rider galloping into some prairie town with an empty bag. Or the first runner from ancient marathon collapsing in the streets of Athens gasping, no news. (laughs) So many questions and so many thoughts. But part of the nature of being a human being is to question. That's part of our thing, Uh, the quality of humanness. So I will take the questions, starting with ones that somehow touch me. And I've also made a task for myself tonight, in part because of the various questions and comments that came. It was also pointed out that my last talk the myth of nachiketa from the kata upanishad was not only a male initiation story but all the anecdotes and stories within it were about boys or men and uh, so several different comments and requests about teaching from the more feminine perspective so as a task for myself tonight to kind of turn the Dharma in a different facet, I'd like to try to do that as well. Best. This is, this is kind of play, so Dharma play, so and let yourself enjoy it. One of the notes of this many that came was someone who was very aware of the suffering and sorrows of the world. You know, as you sit more and become more sensitive, in some ways you experience the suffering more deeply you let it in, you're you're more present, your body and heart is open. And this person said they began to realize the interdependence of things and how the very way we live in this society is part of the source of the suffering for many other beings. So that when you go out for an ice cream cone or when you take an airplane to fly to a retreat, you're driving a car or you're in a jet and you're using the petroleum that caused the Iraq War for a quarter of a million people to die in, most of whom were under the age of 19. The majority of those who died were children. Or you are supporting the aer- aerospace weapons development industry, in part, when you jet around. We are. Or you're contributing to the demise of the ozone layer, every time you fly in a jet, every time you drive your car, that affects all the living creatures of the earth. How can we live on this earth wisely, knowing our interconnectedness? And how can we live so so that there isn't this suffering and we don't create it? One of the people sitting in this retreat who walks as you do back into the hills there, said that this morning or yesterday morning watching the coyotes and tortoises and rabbits and so forth, they saw a coyote catch and eat a hare out there. Which is, you know, all the nature shows on television, remember those? That's what happens in nature. But there you are right next to it in a different way. So the question is, how to have this earth be where there isn't killing and suffering? Or maybe to minimize it, because if you say where there isn't, I would say that the first truth of the Buddha of suffering, that this is not the right place to ask that question. I learned in a telephone call today that a young girl in San Geronimo Valley near spirit rock, named Ona Lessing, Died yesterday or the day before. She'd come to Monday Night Sittings as a high school student. And then she got cancer, a form of leukemia, was in the hospital for a while. And this winter, because her parents asked, many of the Sangha members went and gave blood. She really needed a lot of transfusions. Many, many people were trying to help keep her alive. And she got better, and she came home. Beautiful girl. But then one day, she went back into kind of shock and she died just a few days ago 22 and Arlene, our director, was sitting out in the meadow at Spirit Rock with her parents yesterday who came by to tell her because we'd all worked with her and they were talking about her death and it was a clear completely blue sky and all of a sudden she looked up and there was one small cloud just over the meadow that was shaped exactly like an angel with wings. And she looked, and she sort of was in some shock, and she said to her parents, look up. And they looked up, and they said, wow, it's an angel. And it hovered over the meadow for half an hour, kind of drifted away, still keeping its exact shape, and then disappeared in the trees. The day that Spirit Rock opened, the day that we had the opening, five years ago or something like that, there were two rainbows. They say in the great Buddhist texts when the great things happened, Tibetan texts or the Indian texts, that rainbows appear. I sort of take it mythologically, but it happened that there were two rainbows. And there's a rainbow maybe once a year in that part of San Geronimo Valley. So here we are asking this question. We're on this earth. How do we live? How shall we live? Looking at life as it is. This mystery that we've been born into. How is Buddhism changing in the West? I want to connect these two if I can. In Asia, the original um, flavor of Theravada Buddhism from which these teachings come is held in primarily by monks in monasteries for 2,500 years. Beautiful places and great gifts that they have preserved. But the language and the way the teaching is held comes from the time of the Buddha who was a prince and a warrior prince at that, and a yogi. And so the language is one of conquering and warriorship and authority, mastery over You don't sit in the chair in that form of Buddhism. You sit on the floor and suffer and learn how to bear it. In the monastery where I was, if you were sick with malaria, they would say, see if you can sit up, not lie down with your fever. There is a great emphasis on the training of the mind, on the clarity and clear philosophy, on independence, removing oneself from the world, So, to the extent that when the Buddha was asked before his death, Lord, how should we behave toward women? By one of the chief monks, he said, don't look at them. (laughs) But what if we must look at them? Then do not speak to them. But what if we must speak to them? Then remain really alert. (laughs) That's how it was. So there's a certain sense of the masculine, patriarchal, authoritarian, warrior language and culture that was preserved in. Part of what's happening to practice, as I experience it in the West, is that that becoming balanced with a greater en- en- emphasis or energy of the feminine. Which means rather than the authority, people are becoming encouraged to be their own authorities. Instead of the abbot, there's councils of teachers and councils of boards and so forth running our centers. Instead of independence, there's more a teaching of interdependence, of relationship to one's body rather than removing oneself from it, relationship to the earth. Still, the fundamentals are the same the Buddha said, just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, so does the Dharma I teach have but one taste, the taste of liberation, freedom of the heart, the sure heart's release. He said, I teach one thing and one thing alone, suffering and the end of suffering. So if we look at the story of Nachiketa again, for the fun of it, but instead from the person's note who said, I want the stories of real people, or the feminine. Remember Nachiketa sat outside the gates of the temple for three days, Tangari, or he sat to go to visit Lord Yama. He sat for three days without moving. Do you know what the closest experience that I know to that, even more than my own sitting for a day and night in the monastery, was Liana, my wife, when she was giving birth to Caroline, her labor lasted three days and three nights. And it started because the head, Caroline's head, wasn't engaged fully, um, completely dropped. uh, She started to have waves of contraction, and they went on and on all day and all night. We went in the hospital. Doctor would look and say, Sorry, you know, haven't begun to dilate one centimeter a whole day (laughs) contractions because the head wasn't engaged to actually stretch and efface the um, the cervix. Back home, so we're sitting and she'd walk around for three and then she'd sit down again, oh, another contraction. Day two, more contractions all day, every five minutes or three minutes, most of the night. We went back to the hospital, second night, something's happening. Oh, two centimeters back go back home No, not time yet by the third day up all day and all night finally went in the hospital dilated enough something's happening then her water broke um, up all night long labor so it was like I don't know 58 hours and something it was such that the contractions would come and then she would fall asleep for a minute or two until the next contraction came When you have a baby in a village, some of the cultures, you untie your shoes, you undo the latches, you open the doors, you unbraid your hair. You do all these things as symbols of the kind of opening to pain, to birth and death, because they're very close. It used to be until antibiotics, until recently, that a lot of people died in childbirth. The process Birth and death are so close. And the process is surrender, working with deep pain, opening and opening and opening. That's what our practice is. We sit here to let yourself break open or be broken open, to love that deeply. It's a continual opening of body and heart and mind, and that opening isn't an opening that stays open, just like the contractions that are natural. just There isn't just the baby comes out, that's a kind of linear version, but you'll sense it. You open, and then things close a little, just like your breath. You breathe in and out, the body expands and contracts, the mind opens, oh, it's so spacious, then more stuff comes off, the next contraction pain, memories, difficulties, open to that, more space. It's not like you get to a state that would be a model of awakening as some place which is impossible. You know, you see it, and all of a sudden you get to this point and there's rapture and this great opening you say, this is wonderful, I've worked so hard for it, I want to keep it just this way. Let it not change. And it's like you hold your breath, right? What happens? I don't want it to change. I don't want it to let go of it. <sighs> Enlightenment isn't a state. Wisdom isn't a state. Compassion isn't a state. It's the process of being now and opening. So then Nachiketa, remember the boons that he asked, the first gift that he asked was forgiveness. How is that for us? A great deal of the practice in retreat and the practice returning home has to do with a kind of sacrifice. And the sacrifice is really the willingness of our hearts to touch the world as it is with compassion. The goddess of compassion, Tara, is said to have arisen from the tears that rolled down the cheeks of the Buddha when he did his best utmost to save all beings in all realms and then looked back and saw more beings creating more suffering and the tears of compassion. Like the Sufi saying, overcome all the bitterness that has come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world, each of us is a part of her heart, and each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity." So the question is, how do we hold the sorrows of the world? in our own body each day as we practice as we're here. Poet Gabriel Mistral A woman is singing in the valley the shadows falling blue her song spreads over the fields her heart is broken like the jar she dropped among the pebbles by the river but her deathless heart alive with grief And tenderness gathers all the silent voices into her voice, sharp and sweet. Night grows maternal before this song that goes to meet it. The stars with a sweetness that is human are beginning to come out. The sky full of stars becomes human and understands the sorrows of this world. Each day as we sit and walk and move, we're asked to look like the stars, that quality of holding the world in our hearts with compassion. And each day you are granted a certain measure of suffering and conflict and difficulty. What do you do with that? What will you bring to that? Last fall, I was going from a conference in Washington, D.C. that I had promised to teach up to Philadelphia to my father's funeral. I just stayed one day at the conference and then took a train up from Washington through Baltimore to Philadelphia, and I sat down next to an interesting-looking African-American man on the train, looking for someone to sit next to, it looked interesting. And it turned out he worked in the prison system, juvenile justice in DC. And primarily he worked with teenagers who had committed homicides. Amazing stories he was telling. We talked a lot about African ritual because i worked with this African medicine man, Maledoma who who's a good friend. Various things like that. This man had been in the uh, foreign service in India for a while, but then knew it wasn't for him because they told him in the embassy, He paid his cook and his servants too much. They had big families. He said, I was giving them my money, they needed it. And then they told him in the embassy he was paying way off the proper pay scale and he was gonna spoil it for the other embassy employees. So he said, I knew at that moment this wasn't my gig. (laughs) Anyway, he talked about what it was like to do initiation rituals and work with these young men. And he said, I'll tell you a story. We're riding the train here through Baltimore, he said there was one young man whose trial I went to who had killed another young man on the street in his neighborhood. And at this trial, he killed him for not much good reason. And he said it was a terribly painful trial to go to. And the young man's parents were there. And at the end of the trial, the mother of the boy who had been killed looked at him and said, I'm going to kill you. How do you like that? But as time went on, or and as time went on, she began to visit this young man in prison. She just did. To get to know him. And as she got to know him, she brought him things. Money for cigarettes, you know, or to buy food that he wanted. Asked him if he needed anything. Somehow she came to see him anyway. She was drawn to She got to know him over some years and finally he was released a couple years because he was a juvenile, remember, but he didn't know where to go. So she said, well, maybe I know someone I can find a job for you. She did find a job for him, but he didn't have a place to live. She said, well, why don't you come and live in our house? Gave him a room to live in while he had this job. And finally, one day after he'd been living there for a while, asked, sat him down and said, I have something to tell you. She said, I would like to adopt you as my son. She said, and when I told you I was going to kill you in that courtroom, I meant it. And what I meant is, I did not want the boy who killed my son, that kind of boy, to continue to walk on this earth. And so I would like to make you be my son, To replace him, and I want you to be my son. I've given you all this so you would no longer be who you were, and I think that I've succeeded. So the power of forgiveness is an enormous one, and it's a great sacrifice. It's like the mother. Remember Rodney King in the in the uh, courtroom, where the you know. The uh, guys who had beat him were there, and finally one said, you know, asked to be forgiven, and she said, I forgave you a long time ago. The tremendous transformation each day over and over when we meet what life presents us with forgiveness. That's really the power, to be alive, to be present. Strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings says one Zen master. There's no enlightened beings. There's only enlightened activity. And that enlightened activity is forgiveness and presence. Then remember Nachiketa, his second boon, what did he want? Courage of heart, strength, fire in him. And I think about that. And how is that in our lives? You know, A couple days ago, Liana and Caroline left, like wife and daughter. Caroline was very unhappy that morning. She didn't want to leave. She loved the desert and the bunnies, and particularly she she likes the end of retreats because she usually stays till you're all gone. And then we turn on the mic and she sings in here when it's empty. (laughs) And then she takes all the yellow pillows and makes a whole mountain and crawls under them and cars and, you know, whole big thing, 300 pillows, imagine. And she was terribly disappointed. And she also said, you know, I didn't get to play with my daddy enough. And she's weeping and holding on to me and wouldn't let go. Daddy, you're not there for me enough. You've been too busy doing interviews and teaching and I didn't have enough. And she's crying and crying. And and I'm kind of peeling her little hands off because they're late for the plane and Liana's saying, come on, come on. And Finally, she got in the car and she's weeping. She wouldn't even look at me. And I'm there, and I'm just feeling so sad, you know. The worst thing your child says, you aren't there. You teach meditation, and you're not there for me, right? (laughs) Hmm. But then I watch mothers even more than fathers, because the bond is so close to mothers. And with young children, you know what? It happens over and over and over as they separate that pain and the loss. It's simply part of loving somebody that deeply, over and over again. And it takes incredible courage to love that deeply, knowing that there will be separation, and staying in that place of love anyway. And the courage of that comes, you know, in the more flamboyant sense, who were the mothers in Argentina of the plaza de... What was it called? Does anybody remember? For the mothers of all those who disappeared, who for, for five or ten years, every week on a certain day, would come out dressed in black and mourning for their children who were disappeared and walk around the plaza in front of the government buildings in Argentina, not letting anyone forget that their children had disappeared until finally there was a whole um, change of the government, and they were a big piece of what made that happen. So the strength of heart really is our ability to stay present in the face of the joys and the sorrows of the comings and goings, of the openings and closings, to offer your heart and to trust that it's worthwhile in the end, that no matter how difficult it is, that we can trust that, that we trust that in time the fruit will grow ripe. Consider this, Fred Astaire's screen test. 1933, the memo said, can't act slightly bald, can dance a little. (laughs) Ginger Rogers screen test would work better as a secretary. Vince Lombardi, one expert said, he possesses minimal football knowledge, lacks motivation. They weren't sure whether to hire him. Socrates, of course, was called an immoral corrupter of youth. Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women, was encouraged to work as a servant or a cook by her family. They said, you'll never, education will never be of any use to you. Beethoven, handled the violin awkwardly, preferred playing his own compositions instead of improving his musical technique. His teacher called him hopeless as a composer. (laughs) Like the parents of Maria Callas wanted her to be a seamstress. Her teacher said she didn't have much of a voice and couldn't really sing. Thomas Edison's teacher said he was too stupid to learn very much. Louis Pasteur was a mediocre pupil at the bottom of his class in chemistry. Isaac Newton was bad in school too. Leo Tolstoy flunked out of college, described as both unable and unwilling to learn. (laughs) Albert Einstein did not speak until he was four years old, didn't read until he was seven. His teacher described him as mentally slow, unsociable, adrift forever in his foolish dreams. He was expelled and refused admittance to the Zurich Polytech School. Something else in us knows different. What's the hurry? And that's the place of this strength of heart that we know it over and over again. One Zen master called spiritual practice in sitting learning to bake bread and you knead it, and you try the recipe, and you put it in the oven and pull it out, and you do bake it over and over and over again until you learn the way to make the bread rise and the beauty of the aroma and the shapes of the loaf. What's the hurry? Where are we going? But to be here with some graciousness. One other aspect of this strength of heart is really a love of beauty. Buddhism in the West, instead of condemning the body as dangerous, if you see women, don't talk to them, you know, look at the corpses and all of that, which are part of the very powerful and important part of the renunciate practices in the monastery. For us here, part of our problem in modern society is the loss of beauty, true beauty, And the loss of eros, the loss of love. I mean, what beauty is it to put freeways over this gorgeous landscape? What beauty is it to make shopping malls? Look at our culture. And when we look, do we see beauty? What beauty is it to raise your children in front of a little box with flat images upon it? So, part of the courage of the heart is to love beauty and really want to nurture it in the environment, in relationships, in in the way that we move, in the graciousness of our life. D. H. Lawrence, Oh, what a catastrophe, what a maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal feeling, taken away from the rising and setting of the sun, and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and the equinox. This is what's the matter with us. We are bleeding at the roots because we are cut off from the beauty of the earth, the sun, the stars, and love is a grinning mockery because poor blossom, we plucked it from its stem, from the tree of life, and expected to keep, it, keep on blooming in our civilized vase upon the table. That's not the love I'm talking about. But it's really the love of life itself. And so as Buddhism changes in the West, or we look at what does it mean to live in the world, a sense of forgiveness, courage of heart to be present, and a love of beauty of relationship to self, environment. You could hear it in Sita's song the other night, that song of beauty. Small things, how we hold our teacup, how we do drive, how we treat the people that we live with. And in the small things over and over again, rather than some great model of awakening, It's in care with the details, with the little things. Then life becomes awake, alive, beautiful. One woman friend of mine who had three daughters, her youngest daughter was in a car accident at age 16. I guess she just learned to drive, severely injured. And when she came back and her body started to heal, she was unable to move one arm, one leg. Her eyes were kind of unfocused. She couldn't focus. She couldn't talk well. And the doctor said, you know, she probably won't regain her intelligence and her ability to move. But her mother sensed something else. She said, this can't be. I sent something else in my daughter. And she went and stayed with her in the hospital and then in the rehab hospital and worked with her. For two years, she quit her job, lifting her hand, putting it down, lifting her hand, putting it down, over and over like you do walking meditation. Lifting her hand, putting it down, holding something up, an apple in front of her face moving it this way, trying to get her eyes to track it a little bit, moving it back that way. Hour after hour, for two years. I knew her daughter before the accident, and then I knew her daughter again when she got married and finished graduate school. Her mother knew, and it was just that willingness again like baking bread, over and over. This beauty that we long for is not far away. It is nearer than near. It's just here, like Sita's song. The Tao, being in harmony with the Tao. When people see things as good, others will see them as bad. Being and non-being create each other Difficult and easy support one another, before and after follow. The master knows and acts without doing anything. She teaches without saying a word. Things arise, she lets them come. Things disappear, and she lets them go. She has but does not possess, acts but does not expect. Do you have the patience to wait till the mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain still, unmoving, till the right action arises from the heart itself? The Master does not seek fulfillment, and not seeking nor expecting, she is present with what is and can welcome all things. Then Nachiketa again. The mirror, remember, was given, Who am I? The question, Who are we? It's an easier question for women, especially if you have a child, because this amazing thing happens. You have this child that's born out of your body who was a part of you and is no longer a part of you most amazing thing. Well, which is me and which is other? I'm a twin and I remember a couple years ago I was walking down the street in San Anselmo and this woman was walking by, it was a day in May, in fact, the day before Mother's Day, with a stroller with two little twin boys in them, very cute, probably four or five years old, four years old baby, in this stroller. And I stopped and I looked at them as people do with, with twins or triplets and kind of smiled and waved. And I talk, talked to her for a minute and I said, are they identical or fraternal or whatever? And then I said, I'm a twin too. I have a twin brother. And she looked at me and she said, then you should get your mother a really good present on Mother's Day. <laughs> From the feminine point of view, the question of who am I becomes so natural because the relationship of the world from the feminine, whether mother or not, mother or daughter, somehow is so central to our being. To experience the direct mystery that we are one another. Remember that? We were born out of another being's body. We are one another. We are made of the same clay. Ramakrishna, great saint in India, prayed to the Divine Mother and asked that a vision be given to him of the sacred feminine of the Divine Mother. He was sitting by the river in Bengal one day in his kind of ecstasy of meditation. And the vision came, this huge feminine form arose out of the river wonderful, feminine form, of flowing breasts and long, great hair, and a huge vagina out of which poured children, human babies, animals, just the whole of creation, like the pregnant void, pouring out. And he looked in amazement at this. And then she reached down and picked up some of the babies and ate them, and blood ran down her cheeks and the babies died as she ate them. And then she sank down beneath the waves. That was the vision that Ramakrishna had of that creative force that made all of this and to which all of this returns. Someone asked in their note, what is the source of the breath, remember? The source of the breath is the source of the stars. Where does the breath come from? Kabir says, inside this clay jug, that's us, this body, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water. So when we look in the mirror, who am I? We are that, we've come from that. We return to that, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. So then Nachiketa returns from his journey. And what does he do after he's been in the land of death? I don't know, maybe he gets married likely in those kind of stories. Partnership, which someone said in the staff room the other night, to be in relationship or partnership means that to be willing to be open to another person's suffering as well as your own. That's what it is to love. I got a phone call one day from a writer friend who was doing an article for Glamour magazine at New Year's, and they wanted her to write an article about lasting change. which is <laughs> sort of an oxymoron, especially for a Buddhist, right? What makes lasting change instead of New Year's resolution change? You know that other kind where you decide you're going to change, and you do for a week or two, or something like that? And I began to reflect about it. I reflected about my own marriage. When I was getting married, I went to this old couple, old Quaker couple, and I asked them, the man particularly, I said, how can you make a commitment? I will, I make a commitment to love and be present for and to honor this person for the rest of my life. How can you know that? How do you make such a vow? these people have been married 40 years, they had a beautiful marriage. I said, how did you make that kind of vow? And he said, you don't. I said, oh? He said, you make it every morning. You don't make it just once, but it's really again and again. That's what relationship is. Somebody asked in the notes about beginner's mind. That's what relationship is. Not to fix the person, but to see them or your own body, or your new... the sitting, the next sitting that you do, or the people that you work with, to see them as they are again and again, to listen with your heart, to forgive, to not defend. So there's a sacrifice in that as well. Nachiketa got married, and then his children cried, and he had to go... You know, it was just like his yoga. When the children cry in the middle of the night, you have to get up and care for them. You can't say, well, I've been a yogi already. I've done that. Let me sleep. It doesn't work that way. You go in. When they're sick, you sit up all night. It's really the same practice, isn't it? A lot of sacrifice. I'll tell you another story. Some years after Liana and I first were dating and got together, my wife and I, the year after Caroline was born, we were still relatively new in our marriage, teaching together and traveling together. I was teaching and she was coming with me at times. And um, I was teaching at Green Gulch Zen Center for a day-long retreat Liana had Caroline, was playing with her, and we had her on the backpack. We went for a walk. And uh, the week before, she'd been reading a book by Jean Shinoda Boland called The Goddesses in Every Woman, which is kind of using the Greek archetypal goddesses, uh, Artemis, the inner strength of women, and Aphrodite, the beauty of women, and various archetypes to to see the different ways that the feminine is found and enacted in different people's lives. And she found it interesting, so she asked me to read it. And I read through it, and we were going to talk about it on this walk, she said, because she learned a lot. She asked me, how did I like the book? So I said, I liked it. I was It's pretty interesting. I love the beauty of Aphrodite and You know, the creativity, I forget which goddesses were in it. Goddess of creativity, you know, and I like the strength of Artemis and so forth. I said, there's one goddess in there, one chapter I read that I didn't have so much connection with, and that was Hestia, who in the Roman teachings becomes Vestal, the Vestal Virgin. She doesn't have big temples to her. She's the goddess of the hearth and home, so there's just a little altar in every home. I said, that one I didn't connect to so much. And she stopped dead in her tracks and kind of (laughs) screamed for a moment, just a sort of soft scream. And then she turned to me and she looked at me. She said, I knew it. I knew you didn't love me. (laughs) And my jaw dropped, she said, that's me. That's who I am. You want some other, you know, you want a minister's wife to kind of host all your friends and and, and uh, throw big you know, Buddhist parties and be social and stuff, and I'm just at home quietly and so forth. And I knew it, you would never love me, you don't even know who I am, you know. And I was in shock and then I looked at her and I, it was very, very difficult. She was quite angry and upset. And I said, you know, you're right. I said, it's not that I didn't love you, but if there's some truth in what you say. I really didn't see you. For the years, we've been together on and off for five years, I kept hoping and imagining she was going to be some other person that I kind of wanted as a wife. Was And she could be, and she's very gracious and social when she has to be. It's an inner creative life, and it was, a, it was a very difficult but extremely important moment because I realized how deluded we can be about one another and how hard it is just to accept somebody as they are, and to love them as they are. So that was Nachiketa's problem as well, when he went back. well, I hang out with the lord of death. Okay, let's try marriage now, see how you do with that. Lord Yama's one thing, right? Mm The whole of the Dharma is our relationship to life? It's not life itself. It is our willingness to be present for it. In New York, when James was studying with Ramdas and Hilda and Joya and so forth, remember those days, James? They had an apartment for meditation. They gather e- evenings, and one of, where Ramdas taught this class for a year. At least one of the places was right above where there was a fire station in New York or a fire station and police station, something like that. And they'd be doing these meditations and chanting and trying to sit and meditate, you know, really intensely get, get to God or whatever they called it there, right? <laughs> and, um, and then, after, every, you know, being New York, probably every 10 minutes or so, do, 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 do. Oh, 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 the sirens, because that's New York, right? and people were upset, we should change, we need to find a quiet place, we can't meditate here, it's so much trouble and struggle with all that, right? And you'd just be getting quiet and then do-do-do-do again. <laughs> Do you know the problems you have, it's quiet here, and the traffic or somebody's sniffling or whatever, oh, if only it could be really quiet. Finally, one day it was suggested, suppose by Ramdas or whoever was teaching there, Joy or somebody, suppose that that siren you considered it just free Kundalini energy. And when you hear it "doo-doo- doo-doo," instead of being averse to it and upset, you run it up your spine, you sit there, and you bring it into your body and let it open your chakras. <laughs> and so people would be sitting quietly, and then it would go, "doo-doo- doo-doo," and they or, and they'd bring it into their body, and they'd get high. <laughs> and open) And then it got, although this isn't really so nice, to where they wanted the fire sirens and the police sirens to go off, because it brought this whole awakening to their meditation. So the Dharma isn't what is in the world, but it is our relationship to the world. Anna, I think it was, uh, remarked that there's a, a practice that's done a beautiful practice of looking around at the world and seeing in this practice that every being in the world is enlightened, but one, yourself. So then you look around and you see that what we seek, even if, you, if you're seeking awakening, is perfectly here, not by conquering, but in the suchness of itself. The perfect things arise for you to discover Compassion, justice, wisdom, true love, freedom. To come into complete harmony with the world, the perfect things are given to us each moment. So we learn it over and over and over. We can identify with the body of fear, and we do that. It's our habit. That's all right. <clears throat> you don't try and fight it and get your sword out. I've got to get rid of that. I'm so afraid. I shouldn't be closed. I shouldn't be contracted. What does that do? You know, it just builds bigger fortresses and more wars. Instead, you stop the war. And you sit for a moment and let yourself remember, oh, can I hold this too? even the fear, even the contraction, even the confusion with this greater sense of peace and openness. O oh, world-honored ones, it is as if some man were go to an intimate friend or lover's house and get drunk and fall asleep. Meanwhile, his dear friend, having to go forth on other tasks, ties a priceless jewel in the hem of his garment and departs. The man, being asleep, knows nothing of it. On arising he travels onward till he reaches other countries, where food and clothing, where to get food and clothing, he expends much labor and effort, undergoes exceedingly great hardship, and is content even if he can obtain but a little to eat. Later his friend happens to meet him, and she says, My friend, how is it you come this come to this work so hard for the sake of food and clothing? wishing you to be in comfort and able to satisfy all of your needs. Some years ago, in this year, in this month, on this day, remember when you visited my home, I tied a priceless jewel into the hem of your garment. Now as then, it is present, and you, without knowing, are working and worrying to keep yourself alive. No need, my friend. Go now and exchange that jewel for what you need, and do whatever you will, free from all poverty and difficulty. The jewel in the robe, that's what's here in us, and the jewel is this compassionate presence, our own heart. So when we sit at home, we sit every day just to be reminded, ah, I can be here. And even if you have no sangha, as someone asked in a note, let the trees be your sangha. Let nature, let music, let beauty that you love be your sangha. Listen to your body. Let that be your community. Your body will tell you when it's free. And when you need to love it more deeply, your body doesn't lie, as they say. And as each thing arises, give it space, the space of your heart, the space of your mind, the space of kindness. Bow to it, this too, every experience. And in that, there is the suchness of the world. Things are the way they are, that's your wisdom. And the deep compassionate respect to care for this world because it's only here in this way, for a moment. The freedom to be present, and the freedom to love in the midst of all things. So the last little story is that there was a man who was in prison for a long time. You know what it's like to be in prison. Everyone here does. And he sent a note out, please, please bring me something to help me get out of this prison. (coughs) And his dear loving friend came and she didn't bring him a hacksaw. She didn't bring him a gun or a weapon to get out. Those were all the ways he was thinking he was going to get out. No, she didn't bring him a cake with some file hidden inside it. What she brought him was a prayer rug that she had woven for him. She showed it to the guards, unrolled it, nothing in it. And she said, here, this is for you to pray. So he took the rug and he thought, my God, what does she know? I need a hacksaw, a gun, a knife, a file, right? But he took the rug and because it was a prayer rug, he placed it on the floor of his cell And he kneeled down every day, because he loved her, and he prayed, prayed for release, prayed to live well, even in that circumstance. And one day, as he was on his knees praying, he began to look at the pattern of the prayer rug, very interesting. And he looked and looked closely, and he saw, oh, It was the pattern of a lock. And it was the lock to his cell door. And when he saw it in his prayer and studied it, then one night he got up and he knew just what he had to do to unlock the lock and go out and be free. So that is intention, forgiveness, the source of the breath. Compassion, relationships, family and children, Dharma in the West, forgiveness, story about real people, art, love, humor, um, chairs and the body snatchers. Eh, not so good. Um, let's see. How to find a Sangha, um, what to do with the sufferings of the world, ozone and petroleum, and several other as best as I can do. Let's sit for a minute.